I've been fascinated with the idea of church lately, uh, the idea of church. <clears throat> when I first, many of you know that I, out of college, uh, started working in churches, and I worked in churches up until about eight years ago. The first church I ever got a job at, when I took the job and went there, they were in the middle of a capital campaign, a church capital campaign. How many people have ever been in a church during a church capital campaign? Anybody? Yes, I see those hands. That's right. An envelope is coming. No, that's, uh, it's uh, oftentimes a church uh, feels like they, they need to have a campaign, usually for uh, buildings or facilities of some kind. Um, and when I took the job at this church, I remember when I interviewed the church, the church was like, it was a nice church. It was like the sanctuary was huge. It was one of the most uh, used churches for weddings because it had a super long aisle <coughs> and a nice organ. So you put those two together and, and brides loved it. Um, but on top of that, it, you know, it had a family life center. It had, it had stuff, but they were ambitious with their capital campaign to try to uh, build out from the church. I, I know they wanted to build a gym. They uh, wanted to improve the youth facilities by a lot. I know they had one particular uh, church member that was uh, very generous and very passionate about youth ministry. So the youth facility was a lot nicer than any youth facility I'd ever been a part of. So this was a fun new toy for me to work at when I was a youth minister there. But as we went through the capital campaign, um, usually capital campaigns have some sort of language around them <coughs> where it's like subtle. And it's like you, when if you're new, like the first half of the sermon on that day, you don't realize it's a capital campaign. And then you get to the second half and you're like, oh, they're asking for money. I see what's going on here, right? And so like that was kind of the campaign that was happening. And near the second half of the campaign, the church started to post out big mock-ups and drawings from the architect and contractor uh, to show kind of what they were building. And uh, <coughs> it, was, it was pretty sweet. It was very ambitious, like I said. Multiple huge monitors all around the main sanctuary. Multiple booths, like sound booths and video booths. I, I don't know if the church had ambitions to have their own television network, but it uh, seemed like that was moving toward that. Uh, the youth facility, one of the uh, growth areas was to build a giant uh, video game room for the youth uh, because that's what makes your faith better. Um, Tetris. And so um, there, there was that. I remember the one welcome center, they uh, had mocked up these glass sliding doors with the sensors like you're at the grocery store. I'm like, what are we, a Winn-Dixie? Like, what, are, you know, um, but we, they really went for it. And that church particularly raised a certain amount of money for their capital campaign. And it wasn't, it didn't meet the goal. In fact, it wasn't very close to the goal. <coughs> so they had to make some decisions about what they were going to build out. And they cut back some, but they still uh, decided on a plan where they would spend the money that they would, uh, that they had raised, and then a little bit more money that they were going to put on the credit card. Uh, they were going to take on some debt as a church. And so uh, that's just what the church decided to do. Now, this was in the early 2000s. So it was right before the housing crisis later in the decade. And I know, uh, as many churches, this particular church had, um, had to make some cuts right when the financial crisis happened at the end of the decade because they had debt on their books. And so they were kind of beholden to that debt. And so uh, a couple staff members uh, were cut. Um, and programs were cut here and there. They, they did their best to get by, but they just had that debt. And, I, and I, it was hard to find the research. I was, I was looking up churches in America 
how many churches in America have that? And uh, depending on which study you read and what they say, anywhere from a high 30s, 38 to 39%, I've seen statistics as, as high as 63 to 64% of American churches have debt on their books. American churches have debt on their books. Now, that is equivalent and probably a little less than people in America who have debt. Moment of honesty. Anybody carrying debt right now? Debt is uh, it's a master and we're the slave. When you carry debt, you, it's, it's what you, you owe. You, you're beholden to that. And there may be things that you want to do, but you can't because you still owe on the other thing. <clears throat> the funny thing about the church that I was working at was that once I learned the neighborhood, on the street where the, na- where the church was, if you drove down the road, uh, there was another church, and they had a really sweet youth facility and a gym and a refurbished sanctuary. And then you go a little further down, and there was a Lutheran church, had a gym, had re- recently refurbished, and a little further down, a Baptist church. There were <coughs> a mile and a half stretch. There were four churches with gyms. How many gyms do we have here? Like what? And and the gym that um, that our church was originally going for was like immaculate, like stuff dropping from the ceiling, like an Optimus Prime. It goes from a from a gym to like an auditorium in like three buttons. You know, like it was like that kind of gym. And like the debt kind of held them back. And what happened is, I and I don't know. I don't want to say this is all the intentions, but there is a little bit of keeping up with the Joneses when it comes to churches. I love our church. If people are not attending a church and they're looking for a church, I would prefer that they come to ours. I would like them to come and be a part of our community. I think we've got a good community here. But there are a lot of other churches just in our area. And what's funny about that is when I talk about the idea of church, the early church did not have that. The church of Ephesus did not have five churches in Ephesus. There wasn't a Baptist, Lutheran, Methodist. You know, Pastor uh, Greg, I don't want to belabor the point, but a couple weeks ago he talked about the T-shirt, if you were here, the T-shirt that somebody had that had the list of all the denominations on the back. And it, I don't know if he did it from memory, but if he did it from memory, it was impressive. There's 15 denominations that he listed when I listened to the sermon online. When I looked up online and did my research, there are over 200 license-recorded uh, denominations of churches in America in 2019. Over 200. It's like we we do a great job to find the ways that we're separate, that we're different. Oh, you believe you should baptize the kid right when he's born? I believe it's when they make a decision. Let's split. Oh, you guys want to use uh, drums and a guitar in your worship? We prefer organ and hymns. Let's split. Oh, you uh, believe that... Um, Someone can like backslide, and I believe that it's uh, I can always keep my salvation no matter what I do. Okay, let's split. You believe that every church should be autonomous. I believe that the church should have like a conference that everybody checks in with. Okay, let's split. And the church keeps splitting and splitting and splitting. There was a church uh, in the town that I lived in in Greenville that notoriously split over the color of carpet. <coughs> Churches split for all kinds of reasons. And we have all of these denominations and all that now 
it's like there's, I mean, whether we want to admit it or not, there's competition. They, you know, we, as I said, I would like for people to come to our church rather than another church. And so I want to attract them. And so churches, and ours being one, full disclosure, our church, I, I, did, I wasn't 100% sure until I got out done with the first service and the finance committee pulled me aside and said, by the way, just so you know, our church has debt too, so be cool. And I was like, okay. I said, it doesn't change the fact that when you're beholden to debt, sometimes it can hold you back from other things that God's, God's called you to do. And that's just a decision you have to live with. There are three major churches, one in Kansas, one in Florida, one in New York. You may have heard of these, uh, these churches that recently have gone on in, on this nonprofit. There's a nonprofit that will buy up people's medical debt, and they'll buy it for a penny on the dollar because the, the debtors don't think they're going to get any money, so they just sell it for a penny on the dollar. And there's three, these three churches each did a fundraiser and raised anywhere from twenty to 150000 and then just paid off people's medical, strangers' medical debts. They just bought up all the debt and said, your debt is cleared, you are now clean. And when you are, as a church, have that debt, you don't have that, for, you know, like it doesn't make sense to raise money to pay off someone, other, someone else's debt when you have your own debt. Make sense? And the same goes for individuals. I'm talking about churches now, but let's make this real. How many of us, aren't able to give or contribute to things in our world because we're carrying debt in our own lives. That mortgage is a little too big. That car payment is a little stretch. It's okay. I just got to work a couple extra hours. But when the moment comes up where God might be calling me to a ministry, I might have to hold off for a bit and tell God, hold on, because I'm carrying debt. I'm a slave to this other thing. But when, when it comes to churches, it's because there is kind of an aspect of competition. And the early church did not have that. And this is why it saddens me. If I look at the early church, the early church actually existed as a movement and not an institution. The word church actually wasn't, a, wasn't brought up at all until Acts chapter 5. It's only mentioned twice in the Gospels, and that's in Matthew and that is, uh, the, the word for in Greek for church is um, uh, ecclesia, ecclesia, one of those two. I put the wrong emphasis on the wrong syllable. Okay, ecclesia. It's only brought up twice in the Gospels. One is when Jesus said, Peter, you uh, called me to Christ. On this rock I will build my ecclesia, which is a loosely trammeled assembly. I will build my church on this. <clears throat> the second time, the word is used in the Gospels is when Jesus is talking about when there is conflict within the church or conflict between people, the way to handle it is to go to the person, then bring someone with you, and then bring them to the ecclesia or the assembly to handle the conflict. It's funny that Jesus, one of the only times he uses the word church is to tackle and figure out how to, um, how to uh, address a division. But in 2019, churches are nothing but divisions. But in the early church, it wasn't like that. The church started, and the church started because in that time, the Romanian government, uh, the Roman, Roman Empire, Empire uh, had heavy, heavy taxation rates on their residents. And not just that, but then the Herodian kingdom also had huge taxation rates. <coughs> Combine that with the fact that tax collectors were usually pretty um, corrupt, 
people in those days had anywhere uh, from 80 to 90 percent taxation rates. They were barely getting by. They were oppressed by the people that was that were over them. The rich were getting richer, and the oppressed were getting less and less. And there was a separation. There was a disorder to the empire. And when Jesus brought his kingdom to earth, and the church started, the Holy Spirit comes among people, the movement was a, a radical act of servant and generous, service and generosity. People were saying, those people don't have what they need to get by. I'm going to make sure that they are served. And in that, relationships were formed. And then in that, the Holy Spirit grew this movement that was illegal. People were being thrown in jail for this. And even though it was illegal, and even though it was uh, not an institution, there were not finance committees in the first century church, there were no trustees, we did not have bands leading us in worship, it was just a movement of radical service and generosity. And that church exploded like wildfire, to the point that three centuries later, Constantine finally had to say, you know what, this is going to be legal now. It's, it's gotten too big. The early church grew as a movement like wildfire because of radical service and radical generosity. And when I look at the American church of 2019, I have to be honest in reflection and say I am dismayed because I don't think the American church has that juice, has really any juice right now. The church does good things. I'm not... Uh, I'm not criticizing some of the acts of the church. But to say, is the church right now a movement? There's no context where I could say, yeah, it's a movement right now. We're an institution. And all of the other individual churches are institutions. And we set up within ourselves a slight competition where people actually church shop. They go, like, Church shopping is a new thing as of the last century. It's as new as the motorized vehicle. There was no church shopping in 100, B, uh, 100 AD. The church of Ephesus didn't, didn't go, ooh, I don't like this house so much. Let me see if I can find another church. Because the church was one church. For the, until, from the time in 300 AD, when it was made legal, to 1517, it was still one Catholic church. Not Catholic with the big C. Catholic meaning universal. So you didn't refer to churches as like, that particular church, you would say the church in Ephesus, the church in Philippi. The churches were all part of one big church, and they saw themselves as that until 1517, where Martin Luther saw the corruption that was uh, developing in the institution of the Catholic Church. And he wrote down 95, 95 theses that he believed were wrong about the church, nailed it to their door, and then ran for his life. The church, he, the church did not enjoy being held accountable. In fact, Martin Luther was scared for his life <coughs> when he called out the corruption of the first church. And he was right to do so. But the byproduct of that corruption and Martin Luther doing that was then there was a separation. And now there was a Catholic church and then there was a Protestant church. The Lutheran church is named after Martin Luther. But from that, then there was more splits because there was a Wesleyan movement. So there's a Wesleyan church, but... Also, there's the Nazarene with the Wesleyan Church. And then the Methodists came around. But then it wasn't just United Methodists. Now we have to have free Methodists. And we split and we split and we split. And now we live in a place where people church shop and there's competition. And it's not a movement anymore. And the thing is, occasionally we catch a whiff 
of the times it can. A top five moment in my life was three weeks ago. I'm so blessed and thankful that so many of you came on Main Street in downtown Clarkston and came alongside five, six, seven other churches in our community. And there was around a thousand people there. And together we worshiped in the public square proclaiming how great is our God. And it was, yeah. Ah. I have goosebumps. Because when that unity happens, that's when you go, there's something to this. So how do we get back to having that unity that made the early church so unstoppable when we live in an institutional era of churches where many of us carry debt and are kind of trying to keep up with the Joneses? Well, we've been going through Ephesians. And let me just give you some context of Ephesians if you haven't been the first five weeks. The first half of Ephesians, chapters 1 through 3, are Paul describing the incomparable and undeniable grace of Jesus Christ and how it will change your world. <clears throat> it will absolutely change your world. I was jealous of Pastor Greg. He got the scripture last week that I wanted to preach on, so I'm just going to go ahead and take it anyway. He actually said, chapter 3, verse 18, he, he read and he said, And I pray to you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Ah, that love is real. It has changed my life. Many of you will stand up and say it has changed my life. Absolutely. And so the first three chapters about how that grace can change your individual life. Chapter 4, Paul transitions to start to say, well, if that grace has changed your life, this is what the Christian life should look like. So chapter 4, verse 1, he says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. What's great about that pause <coughs> is that Paul just spent the first three chapters just proclaiming exuberantly the, how great the grace and love of Jesus Christ is, how powerful he is. And you find out chapter 4, he's in prison. Some of us are like, ah, if my faith makes me a little uncomfortable, I'm going to have to reevaluate some things. Paul is sitting in prison and he has no doubts that God has his back. He has no doubts that the grace of Jesus Christ will triumph over all. Oh, that's so good. Okay, chapter 2, or verse 2, sorry. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. The unity, Paul brings up the unity. If we're going to look like what the church should look like, there should be a unity there. So verse 4, here's what it looks like. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, who is over all, through all, and in all. That's a lot of ones. I don't know if you saw all the ones in there. One body, one spirit, one God, one Father, one hope, one faith. <coughs> Paul is painting a picture of a church that together, brought together by the grace of Jesus Christ. We believe that grace, and I talked about this a couple weeks ago, that grace mends our broken pieces and makes us whole. But Paul is saying in chapter 4 that God takes our broken pieces and makes us whole as one body. Not as a church or individual churches, but as one body. <coughs> What's interesting that I found when I was reading back through the Gospels is that 
Jesus never called us to be the church. He never said, I need to be the church. We weren't called to be the church. We were called to be followers of Christ. We were called to be his followers. And then by his grace, it's like we become the church accidentally. Oh, I'm following Christ and you're right next to me and he's brought us together. I guess this looks like the church now. It was never meant to be the church first, then everything else. It was meant to be, I'm going to be a follower of Christ and God will make us the church. Right? So we'll continue on, verse 5. Or verse 7, I'm sorry. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. I'm going to skip past the parentheses and move ahead to verse 11. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers. When I first read this, I thought, this is a scripture that is based around us finding our specific voice and gifts. Because there's a difference between apostles and prophets, prophets and evangelists, evangelists and teachers. Apostles are people who are witnesses who walked alongside Jesus. Prophets are people who are good at speaking truth and at uh, in, in situations that maybe are a little complex. there I, I don't know that I'm ever going to be a Jeremiah or anybody here is going to be a Jeremiah, but many of you are people who have the ability to see God's truth in a, in a strife or in a conflict and say, here's where the truth is. Here's where God wants us. Evangelists have a specific tool of being able to communicate the gospel to people who don't believe or maybe don't even know. Pastors are shepherds of existing assemblies. Teachers have the ability to convey how to do things. I thought this verse, uh, or this section of verses, was about finding which one of those are we. And this is a message about gifts and how do we find our gifts. That's what I thought. But then I, I only did that because I didn't read the very next verse. So let me read 11 again. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers. Verse 12. To prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity. I don't know if you caught that. I'll read it again. So that. I lost my place. So that the body of Christ may be built up. Oh, sorry. Before that. To prepare God's people for works of service so the body of Christ may be built up until we reach all unity. God gave us people to teach us so that we can perform acts of service. And from those acts of service, that's where our unity forms. You know, when we talk with each other, it's real easy to find things that divide us. We start talking, we realize we like different things. We believe different things. That person's a little more liberal. That person's a little more conservative. That person might call themselves a Republican. That person might call themselves a Democrat. This person's educated. This person's not educated. And we find all the things that divide us. When we talk, and write out our doctrine, we can find the ways that we're separate. But I believe God has called us to say, even though you disagree, works of service bring us together. When we serve the world, when we see the people that are oppressed or have needs around us, and we serve together, we're not separate. That's what brings us together. And that's where unity happens. And that's why the first century church blew up as a movement because it wasn't about institution. It wasn't about uh, trying to keep up with other Joneses because there was no competition. They were one church dedicated to serving those who had need. In Exodus chapter 20, <coughs> God has sent Moses 
to deliver the, deliver the Israelites from slavery. They have been freed. They were oppressed. They no longer are oppressed. They were slaves. Now they are free. They have, ex- they have experienced freedom like they've never felt or understood. And so God then sends them the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. And the fourth commandment, I won't, I won't say them all, but the fourth cam- commandment is we one we all know well. I know it from a young age. Thou shalt not take the Lord's name in vain. And you know what that means. That means no cursing. That's what it means, right? If I read the fourth uh, commandment, don't take the Lord's name in vain, that means I can't say the F word, the G word, the JC word, the, um, if I'm in vain, right? That's what that means. But when I went back to the Hebrew, I looked at that word take. The Hebrew word for take in the, in the uh, Ten Commandments is actually more often translated carry. So if you put that in, you say, thou shalt not carry the name of the Lord in vain. It takes on a whole new understanding. Because these people were saved by God and then called his children. And if they're going to carry that name, that means carrying his name is taking it to someone else who else is uh, oppressed and trying to help deliver them to freedom. I've been given grace, so I'm going to carry the Lord's name and give grace to someone else. Be a conduit of grace to someone else. If I carry God's name, if I call myself Christian, but don't take it to the next person who went through, is going through the same thing that I went through, then I'm carrying it in vain. Does that make sense? And so if I'm not, if, if I'm supposed to carry the Lord's name not in vain, that means serving the oppressed, welcoming the refugee, serving those impoverished, looking out for the widows, all of the people that Jesus would name when he talked about offering a cup of cold water, serving those in our world who need. And when we carry the name, not in vain, but we carry the name we're supposed to, we don't talk about the things that divide us. When we talk about the things that divide us, when we split ourselves off, when we section off by demographic or belief system or how we like the methodology of how we like things, when we do that, we're actually... Carrying his name in vain, carrying his name not in vain, is to deliver freedom and grace to the God who delivered freedom and grace to us. When we look out and serve people in the world, that's carrying his name the right way. And serving that leads to unity. I have faith and hope that our God still has the juice. That the Holy Spirit is still among us working. And it's on us to take on a radical service and a radical generosity. And when that starts to happen, it will pull us together and God's kingdom will come to earth. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When I radically serve and I'm radically generous, God's people are brought together. And I think the church could fulfill that, but it means abandoning the spirit of competition. Worrying about how many people are sitting in our pews. Worrying if I'm measuring up legally and if that person believes the same thing that I believe. I'll go a step further. Can you worship next to someone who claims a sexuality not like yours? Can you worship next to someone who believes baptism is different than yours? Can you worship next to someone whose belief system is off from yours? Because when you serve together, 
those things fade to the background. Because God's grace and our service becomes, becomes the number one thing. We can talk about all the ways that we're different. That's why we've got 13 churches in Clarkson, I think, that I counted. When we put one God together, I did a Google search, and boy, there's a lot. A lot of Baptists, a lot of Methodists, a couple Catholic. We, we got them all split up. I don't know if it's because of carpet. I don't know if it's because of music. I don't know if it's because of doctrine. But I know that, God, that the heart of God bleeds for his people to be one. And the only way that's going to happen is through radical service and radical generosity. I think we can do it, but it means looking outside of ourselves. I'm going to throw something up on the screen. If you're interested in serving in a way, and you may say, hey, I'm volunteering a couple hours here and three hours at this other thing. I'm not disparaging anyone's volunteer time or service. I'm saying it's going to take a new level of service for God's kingdom to start to catch on like wildfire again. And if you say, hey, if I serve like that, I'm going to have to change some parts of my life. Good. That's what it's supposed to look like. When Jesus came to the disciples, he said, put down your fishing poles and follow me. And guess what? They put them down. They changed their job because Jesus called them to a new way of life. So I'm throwing serve up on the, on the screen. If you're interested in serving in a new way, or you think, you know what, I need to be putting more time in toward God's kingdom, we have a lot of roles within Clarkson Community that we're trying to help people serve our community. And someone on staff, when you text us, will reach out to you and say, here are some options if you're interested in serving. But I'd go a step further. <clears throat> there may be roles that our staff have not put down. You may be gifted in a way that we haven't even thought of yet. You may be like, you know what, I'm not really into mentoring kids. I don't play a musical instrument. I'm not good leading people. I don't even like people. right? Like That may be your thing. But you may say, I have a gift. I, I'm a painter. And I believe in this, this idea that the church can be a revolution again. We're going to find a way to use that. You may say, I'm a copywriter. We're going to find a way to use that. Whatever, I'm, a, I'm a video gamer. I'm, I can play Tetris with the best of them. We're going to find a way to take what you can offer to God. And together, we're going to serve the world. Because the church cannot be revolutionary again. We cannot be unified again until we commit ourselves first and foremost, to the grace of Jesus Christ and secondarily to the service of the world so that the rest of this world can see his grace be real in their midst. Do you want to serve? God's calling you here. He's beckoning you here. And the way that Paul puts it, the only way this church is going to be unified is if you make it your priority.